If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. As we've been working through this book, I took a little break for the Easter holiday, and then I was not well for a couple of weeks, but uh, we're, we're back at it today. So trust that the Lord will refresh your memories and that we'll be blessed as we search God's Word and seek to understand what the Lord is telling us in this very interesting and very beautiful book. So we come to chapter 4. And actually, you know, we read, uh, what was it, First Thessalonians 1 and 2 this morning? Uh, we kind of have to read chapters 4 and 5 together. They're both short chapters, but they're really, you know, the chapter divisions were added later after the scriptures had been written. And there's a break, obviously, between 4 and 5, where 5 begins. But we would do well to not put a break there and read this. So the neither chapter is very long, um, but it's one picture. And so... We're going to really focus on chapter 4 today in the message, but I would like us to listen and hear both. So, as you know, this book begins by saying that there's a blessing on the one who reads. And it's interesting, the Greek word for read, anagenosko, it actually means reading out loud. So, uh, you know, I'm covetous of that blessing. And there's a blessing on those who hear. So it's not just listen, but hear, actually listen and hear both, you know, the idea of paying attention. So may God bless us as we read his holy word from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. John the Apostle is writing and says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
and to cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What a picture. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand your will and to know your word. We thank you for it, that you have spoken to us. You gave your word through prophets and apostles in old times. You had them write down what you gave them, and you inspired them and guided their writing so that what they wrote was your words. We thank you that you preserved that word through history, Lord, and through time, and we thank you that you had it translated and brought into our very language so that we can hear it in our own tongue this day. And we thank you and praise you for this section of Scripture. So we ask you to open your word now to our hearts and open our hearts to your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. 
You know, we live in uncertain times. We don't have to. You don't need a preacher to tell you that. I think everybody knows that. Um, things are uncertain. We never know. Well, what's going on? You know, what's what does the future hold? We look at the stock market sometimes. We look at different things. Uh, monetary values they seem to be going up or down, or the dollar's going down and things are going up. Or it's hard to tell what's going going to happen. How do you predict the future? Uh, from a human standpoint, it's like we just don't know. We, you know, there's many things we just have to wait on the Lord. Jesus told us, don't worry about the things of tomorrow or take no thought uh, for the things of tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of the things of itself. And then he said, sufficient unto the day are the troubles or the evils thereof. So every day has its blessings. Every day has its troubles. Worrying about it doesn't help anything because it's going to unfold according to God's plan and purpose. And that's really what this book is about. And that's what this these two chapters we just read begin to set forth for us. So we have this this section of God's word. It's a very beautiful John, as we see in chapter four, he's invited into heaven, and he sees this vision of God, and it's clearly it's God the Father. There's no similitude, as the old King James would say. There's no image when it describes him. It says he was like unto a jasper stone, and to a sardius stone, and it's like, well, what is that? Well, one is a, a red stone, the other one is kind of multicolored, and just, he said it was really beautiful what he saw. And he doesn't say, well, you know, he had, you know, he was six foot four and had, you know, blue eyes, blonde hair, or something like that. It doesn't describe God in those terms. When God appeared to Moses in, on Mount Sinai uh, in Deuteronomy, God reminded them that upon the mount, he said, you saw no similitude. You didn't see it, something that you could go make a picture or an image. Uh, because God doesn't reveal himself that way. God is a spirit. But here we see his, his presence is manifested, his glory is manifested. And then we see in chapter 5, the son of God, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. That's how he's described by one of the elders to John. But then when John looks, does he see a lion? He sees a lamb. And the lamb is worthy. You know, we saw John wept much because no one was worthy that scroll seems to be the future, the history of God's plan, the unfolding of it. And John said there was nobody worthy. It couldn't be placed in anyone's hands for its unfolding until the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, stepped forward. And the scroll was then given to him. He took it and then we'll see in the next chapters as things begin to unfold, as he breaks the seals and begins to unroll that scroll of the future, a lot of things happen. So here we come now to chapter 4. As I say, John is invited into heaven. And he's told after, you know, he says, I looked. Keep in mind, that's the, what has immediately preceded was the seven churches. Remember, John was told he was to write the things that he'd seen. And that was the opening vision of Christ. The things that are, and that is understood generally to be the seven churches. And the things that shall be after this. So... In a very real sense, this 4 and 5 is also the things that are, because this is in future. This is what was going on in heaven. So we've had the seven churches addressed, some commended, some rebuked, uh, some with a mixture of both. But now we come to the view in heaven. And so he says, after these things I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven. There was a door opened into heaven. As I think it was Matthew Henry pointed out, um, heaven apparently has a door, and if the door's not open, no one goes. 
Uh, it's not just an, an open, borderless uh, location. So a door was opened in heaven. You know, uh, St. Stephen saw that in his martyrdom when he was getting ready to die. He looked and he said, I see heaven open and, and the Son of, of, of God standing at the right hand of, of God. And he called on Jesus. So John sees this. And the first voice which I heard, which was the voice of Christ in chapter 1, was like a trumpet speaking with me, very loud and clear in this case, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. He says, immediately I was in the spirit. And the idea when he says that, it was, you know, as as Paul said, that he said he knew a man that was caught up to heaven. He says, whether it was physical or spiritual, he said, it's kind of hard to tell. He said, but it it happened. So here John is seeing this and I said, well, is this just a visionary? Is he still physically on, uh, you know, the island of Patmos and heaven is now open? He's seeing this. Or was he physically taken there? And the answer is, it is what it says. He was in the spirit. So he's having this vision. And behold, he says, a throne set in heaven. So the first thing he sees is God's throne. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there again, as we've talked about, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. That's a rather interesting description of the throne in heaven. He says it has a rainbow about it. If you know your Bible, you know the rainbow came about. If you read the book of Genesis, chapter 10, you find that God put his rainbow in the sky after the great flood to let men know that uh, he would be at peace with them. And really, we see in this fourth chapter, this concerns, you might say, the whole creation, because it speaks of those that were on earth or those in heaven, those on earth and those under the earth. Those in the sea, we read in chapter five of praising God. So the covenant that God made in Genesis was with the creation that he would not destroy the whole world with a flood again. And so he put his rainbow. So the rainbow is a sign of God's grace. And so when uh, John sees the throne, you know, we read it, it's just this very beautiful description. And it's kind of we can use our imaginations. And I think we should. God gave us this. So we should be thinking about it. He sees this beautiful throne in heaven, and he's going to describe the setting even more so. But he sees, that, as he says, there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And kind of that beautiful, shining, transparent, you know, emeralds are, can, are generally green. But as he sees this beautiful rainbow around God's throne, it's a reminder to us that this is the throne of grace that he's seeing. This is the throne where God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. So as John sees this picture of God in the heavens, he sees the rainbow. And again, that shouldn't be lost on us. That is a sign of God's grace and his covenant. So this is indeed the throne of grace. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we are to boldly come to the throne of grace so that we can find grace and and help in time of need. And so he sees that. And then he says in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. It sounds like Mount Sinai. That's what happened there. If you remember when the Lord came down, you know, the, the mountain looked like it was on fire. And there was a dark cloud over the mountain. And when the Lord spoke, there was lightnings and thunderings and voices. And then God gave his word. That's about what... We're getting ready to happen. He says, the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. These would, you know, a lamp, you know, we think of the oil lamps, and John sees this, and he says, he saw seven of them, 
And he says, which are the seven spirits of God. I think it's been pretty well understood that, uh, that this is the sevenfold spirit of God. If you remember when John saw this vision of the seven spirits of God and then addressed the churches, each one it was, he that has ears, it wasn't let him hear what the spirits say, it's let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so we're really seeing here a symbolic reference, because just remember chapter 1, verse 1, he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. That word signified in the Greek, semeo, it means to show by signs. And so this is symbolic language. <clears throat> some have said, you know, if you read like commentaries, they'll often tell you, well, some will say, well, we take the book of Revelation literally. And it's like, well... It's a symbolic book, so if you're going to take it literally, you should take some of it symbolically pretty clearly. Um, most of the time, dispensationalists and others, when they say that, what they really are saying is we take it physically. And I told you when I've had fellows say this to me, and I said, well, there's symbols in the book of Revelation. He goes, well, you're allegorizing. He's like, no, I'm not. It's a symbolic book that I would say, as you've heard me mention before. Do you really think there's going to be a big red dragon appear in the sky physically and he's going to sweep one-third of the stars out of the entire universe with his tail? you really believe that's what's being described in the book of Revelation? There's probably people out there who go, well, yeah, but I've not met those. Generally, most people are reasonable enough to say, well, well, no, no, that's a symbol. It's like, thank you. That's exactly my point. There are symbolic things in the book of Revelation. And the thing to remember with a symbol... You have a picture. It's like in the sacraments. Very good example. You have bread and wine. There's something that they represent. And what is it? We know the body and blood of Jesus, right? And so the thing signified and the symbol are closely related, but they're not the same thing. I've used the illustration often in the past. If you're driving down the highway, coming up I-5, I don't know if the billboard's still there, and you're hungry, and you've been on a long trip, and you look and you see the ad for, what is it, uh, one of the hamburger joints, In-N-Out Burger, okay? I don't want to lose you having mentioned that because it's getting close to lunchtime. It's like someone said, if you mention lasagna in a sermon, that's about the last thing some people are going to hear, okay? So stay with me, okay? If you see that bullet, bullet or billboard with a picture of an In-N-Out Burger on it, it looks really good. At least it's the one that used to be up there. You don't pull over your car, get a ladder, climb up, and start munching on the billboard. I hope you don't. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. Because you recognize that sign represents something that's up ahead. There's something behind it. It closely resembles it. It's a visual representation, but it's not the thing itself. So there is a correspondence. Now, in the book of Revelation, sometimes it just becomes really close. For instance, the incense that we saw uh, that was offered, we're told it's the prayers of the saints. So if you're like me, sometimes a little slow on the uptake, it's like, I wonder what that incense is. God just tells you that's the prayers of the saints. Oh, okay. So the incense, the worship that's offered in heaven, we're in the Old Testament in the temple or the tabernacle before that, where the priests would go in and put the incense on the censer and go in. A wonderful aromatic uh uh, smoke-filled room smelled really good. Well, that's the way your prayers are before God. They're well-pleasing when they're offered in faith through Jesus Christ, and he, as your mediator, presents those. So sometimes the symbol and the thing symbolized 
It's absolutely clear. Okay, and that comes up in Revelation on a few very important issues. But in this case, uh, he sees the seven spirits of God. As I said, I believe that's the symbolic representation of the, the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. There were seven churches addressed. There are seven spirits. That is, the Holy Spirit uniquely works in each one, each church, congregation, individually. But it's one and the self-same spirit, as Paul said. One Lord, one faith, one God and the Father. And, and we have one spirit. God is a spirit, and he's not divided. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Okay, And we know that that Hebrew word one is echad. And it's the same word used when Adam and Eve, the two shall be one. So it's a it's a unity that can have a plurality within it. So Deuteronomy 6.4 doesn't negate the doctrine of the Trinity, as some try to say. There is one God, but in his unity, there's something very unique. He is a different sort of being than we are. And so we have to know him from his word. So he sees the sevenfold spirits. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Isaiah had said the wicked are like the troubled sea that's churned, it's tossed. He said there's no peace for the wicked. Here before the throne of God, he sees a sea of glass. That is, it's calm, it's peaceful. There's all kinds of things going on on earth where there's tumult and upheaval and the nations are like the, the roaring waves of the sea. But in heaven, all is at peace. And that's what he sees. Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. There were four beings there. Isaiah identifies something quite similar in Isaiah 6 where he describes the seraphim that were before the throne. Uh, And they're full of eyes in front and in back. These uh, are angelic beings that do the will of God. And they are able to see in front and back. In other words, they have a full vision of God and that you, you know, we would say in colloquial language, they know what's going on. And then he describes them. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And so there's this um, fourfold aspect to these living creatures. Now Augustine believed that, or he at least he set forth the idea that this could be a symbolic representation of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because he said the uh, Gospel of Matthew sets forth Christ as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's written primarily to for Jewish people, or Hebrews. That's why it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. That was important. And uh, Mark shows Christ as the servant, and like the calf, uh, some translate it the ox um, shows in that way the third had the face of a man some says the humanity of Jesus really shines forth in the gospel of Luke more so than the others and then John emphasizes the deity of Christ and shows that he is the son of God or God the son God incarnate come from heaven and so the fourth one was like a flying eagle and that may have something to do with this but generally I think in looking at this uh, so that might be a, a good uh, application but if we think about it well these four living creatures you know lions are courageous they're brave we just saw in the next chapter the lion of the tribe of judah has prevailed lions are creatures in the wild you do not mess with a lion 
you know, it's really neat. Sometimes if you're, you know, looking on the Internet, if you like to look at, you know, the African things and, you know, people that take care of exotic animals, you'll find some people have made friendships with lions. It's pretty awesome. I don't know if there's a common one's been out for a while where it shows that the uh, fellow that had raised a lion from its infancy bought it because somebody had it in Africa. He bought it, raised it up kept it for as long as he could, but then it got big and he had to take it to a, a like a reserve where they allow animals like that. And he came back to see it about five years later and he actually just went into the area and the lion was there and they didn't know what was going to happen and all of a sudden the lion sees a human inside the compound and it comes running at him. If you've seen the video, you know how this ends and it's like, ooh, I don't know if I want to watch this. And all of a sudden the lion just puts both paws up on him, starts licking him on his face and hugging him. And it's like the lion didn't forget. The lion remembered this is the guy that had saved his life. And it was like, oh, man, I want a pet lion, okay? <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to climb in a lion cage to try to make one. I also remember when years ago, seeing the, uh, I think it was, I'm not even sure if it still exists anymore, but it was the Africa, USA, you know, uh, down in the Bay Area. And that's when they came out and the guy had all the tigers before it started. I've mentioned this before. I've actually found the uh, article about this. Uh, and the uh, the tamer, he first brings out a lion, does a couple tricks. The lion sits up on the um, stand. Then he brings out all the tigers and he has them jump through hoops and flames and all that. And it's pretty awesome. You know, we're sitting there. I remember my boys were little at the time. We we're watching this. And then and when he's all done, he takes to have the lions go back. And it was pretty exciting, you know, a couple times, you know, the lions, or the tigers rather, or you know, like that. And so watch it. And then it's just him and the lion. And he brings the lion down, introduces him. The lion kind of jumps up, and you see this thing is huge. And he tells, he introduces the lion, his name, and I can't remember what it was, but I'm just watching this. And the guy says, this is my friend. And he introduces him. And he said, lions will bond with their trainers much more so than a tiger ever will. And he said, the reason why I bring him out first and take him out last is he said, he's here to protect me. He said, the tigers aren't really afraid of me, but they're afraid of him. And if they come after me, he will come and rescue me. And the tigers know that, so they don't do things because they keep their eye on him. They know he's and he keeps his eye on them. And again, I thought, man, I want a pet lion, okay? <laughs> but actually, probably not, okay? Um but it's just pretty, pretty awesome. Lions are courageous. You know, thank God the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about, you know, Jesus is not a pet lion. Okay, let's get that squared away. But he's bonded with us. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lions are courageous. This creature before God is represented as appearing like a lion. Didn't say he was a lion, but he appears that way. Lions are fearsome. They're courageous. They bond and they look out for the people that need them apparently they you know definitely in the wild they look out for their own and so he sees the first one this the second one was like a calf or as some can translate it as a, as a an ox or a bull so the second one is uh, this creature really symbolizes the idea of service you know oxen pull the plows they you know if you know anything about the old west they pulled the covered wagons often you know where horses wouldn't endure oxen generally would um, the third one was uh, a man. Men are supposed to, that is, be image bearers of the true God. And clearly in heaven, being in the likeness of a man here, they're having that appearance. 
you know, the, it kind of symbolizes the idea of wisdom, that, you know, someone who fears God. And then finally, the eagle, an eagle is, soars above everything, sees everything. You know, we refer to the, the phrase eagle-eyed because eagles have the density of their eyes are such that they can see a little tiny mouse when they're about a thousand feet in the air and they can come down and they can get it, their eyesight and their swiftness and their power is something else. That's how he describes these four living creatures. They're before God. And so there's kind of a fullness there, you get kind of a picture of uh, those who serve God in heaven. They're everything they're supposed to be. And then he describes them, he says, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night. Clearly symbolic language, but saying they don't stop, they don't cease, they don't rest day or night. It's not that they're... they're they need to get some rest and they can't. They don't want to rest. They're alive. They're energized. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. And so this chapter gives us that insight into the heavenly worship. And they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This is similar to what the cherubim said in Isaiah 6, where they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. Uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. Here they describe him that thrice holy. We recognize that, well, there's a, there's a hint toward the Trinitarian formula there, isn't there? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The one who exists. He is the one who was. He always has been. He is the creator of all things, the definer of reality. He is and he is to come. He is the one that holds the future. And he is eternal. Now, in, there's an interesting thing in some manuscripts, actually quite a number of Greek manuscripts, um, where it says, holy, holy, holy. And I'm not saying that this reading, this I'm about to mention is the authentic reading. I think what we have in our Bibles is the authentic one. But some copyists have the holy, holy, holy nine times. It's a block. Greek is hagias, 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 hagias. And it's like... What's that supposed to mean? You know, God is nine times holy. Well, it means any direction you go up, down at an angle or whatever, backwards, forwards. God is thrice holy every way you can approach him. That's more of a commentary, I think. But here we see the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Holy means separate. Okay, Hagias, it means the separation. He is like none other. He's able to communicate. You know, the neo-Orthodox theologian said, God is wholly other, and therefore he cannot speak to us because he's totally different. It's like, wait a minute. You're saying God's almighty, but he doesn't know how to communicate with his creatures? Uh, that's blasphemous, particularly if you believe the Bible is the word of God. God communicates. He is thrice holy. Yes, he is separate from the creation. He is like no other being. He is unique in and of himself. The only way we can know him is if he reveals himself to us. And here he has as being thrice holy and the Lord God Almighty, the Pantocrator, that is he's sovereign Lord over everything who was and is and is to come. So God is able to communicate to his creatures. He's not limited. The idea of saying he couldn't do that, although it sounds kind of in sophistry, it sounds like, well, wow, that's such a deep view of God. It's like, wait a minute, you're saying that the Almighty God is so other than the creation that he's he's hamstrung and incapable of talking to us. It's like, have you guys never read the Bible? 
God speaks into the creation. He speaks it into being. He communicates his word. He had it given through apostles and prophets and written down. God speaks. And so when we read the Bible, we're reading God's word. Here we learn about God, who he is. And so we're told in this heavenly worship, wherever the living creatures give glory, whenever rather, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. That's what they're doing when they're praising God. Who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. What's going on in heaven? Worship, praise, adoration, thanksgiving. A clear vision of who God is and a communication of that knowledge to their hearts and minds. So when they see him and they see the four living creatures praise God, he says, the 24 elders. And by the way, the 24 elders, I believe, is clearly a symbol of the church, both Israel and in the New Testament period. Because if you go to chapter 5, we need to look there. We're told in verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. It's probably a reference there to the 24 elders. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I already mentioned that. And they sang a new song saying, now note this, okay? This is the Texas Receptus. That's why I use it, because I think it's the authentic word. They said to God, you are worthy to take this scroll. That is, they're speaking to Christ, the Lamb, and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So they're identifying themselves as being those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That would be men. So the 24 elders, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. It's a symbol of the united church, you might say, of both testaments, God's redeemed people in heaven. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. And then note, not just Jews, but Gentiles, as it's described here, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's no one excluded. God has his elect scattered throughout the world. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So get an idea who who are these 24 elders? What is that a symbol of? What does that represent? These 24 presbyters. So when they hear the four creatures praising God, note what it says, uh, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now the word crowns there, there's two different words in Greek for crown. There's diadem, uh, di- well it's the word we get the word diadem, and then there's another word stephanos, okay? Um, if your name's Stephen, you know what that word means. It's a victor's crown or the laurel that was placed on the conqueror or the victor, uh, whether in the games or actually if triumphant in war. And so these are men who are crowned, the 24 elders, that is as victors. This is Stefano, it's the victor's crown. They have by the Lamb overcome, and as we read all through the church section, the seven churches, he that overcomes shall inherit all things, etc. He that overcomes, that's where the promises were given. So they're there before the throne, they have the victor's crown, it's all by grace. But when they hear God being worshipped, their authority, their power, their rewards means nothing god gets all the glory they cast their crowns before the throne saying and here's what they say you are worthy O lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created now there is a verse in colossians that i'd like us to look at if you have a reference bible it's probably listed in the margin and that's colossians chapter 1 
referring, this is referring to Christ. And Paul writes in uh, Colossians 1.16 of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. That is, if you want to get to know God, you need to get to know Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first creature, as the Jehovah's Witnesses blasphemously try to assert. Firstborn is the position of inheritance. Remember, Jacob became firstborn, but he wasn't firstborn in time. Christ is the firstborn, meaning he's the head of humanity, the head of the new humanity. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Jesus created everything. He's the creator. God the Father created through the Son. All things in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Then note the last statement. This is important for us as we consider how, to, how should we live our lives. All things were created through him and for him. That last, those last three words, and for him. That means you exist for the good pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are you living? Does that have any reference to anything you're doing? Because if not, then you're not being who you are. Who That is who you're supposed to be. You were created for the Lord's good pleasure. All things were created through him. That is the Father created through the Son. Christ is created with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But everything was made for him. God brought the creation into being through Christ because it pleased him to do so. And because it was for the sake of his son that he would be glorified. And then the son glorifies the father because that's the way God is. You exist for his glory, not for yours. You exist for his good pleasure, not to do your own. And how important is that? We need to pray and say, Lord, I want to worship you in a manner pleasing to you. You made me. That's what they're saying here. Note that. For you created all things, Revelation 4.11. And by your will they exist and were created. And the word by your will can also mean by your pleasure. But that is what you, what you desired. And so here we see this picture of worship in heaven. So we can ask ourselves, okay, we've got these two chapters. We're not, we'll save chapter 5 for next week. Why did God begin this section of the book of Revelation? That is, the things that shall come hereafter. In chapter 1, verse 19, that third section, the things that are going to be future. Why did he begin that with this vision of heaven and heavenly worship? You know, some of us would get a little impatient. We'd be like, why didn't he just start telling us what's going to happen? Instead, heaven's open and we see, we're, we're brought in with John. You know, we do it literarily. And the Holy Spirit makes it real for us. But we're there reading this, beholding it. The Holy Spirit's working in our hearts and minds. And we see this. Why this vision? Why is this? Well, in the chapters ahead, we're going to read about the martyrdom of the saints. We're going to read about the devil doing everything he can to try to try to destroy God's people and thwart God's plan. And I believe these two chapters, this one vision that John has, the reason why it's right there at the beginning of the discussion of future things is before the Lord reveals to his saints the events and times ahead for them, he first emphatically assures them that he is absolutely sovereign and in perfect control of all history, past, present, and future. He is the God who was and who is and is to come. He's already got it covered because he ordained it and decreed it. What is going to unfold will not occur from random chance. You know, I talked about we kind of wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know for sure. 
neither do you. But we know one who does know, and that's God, and we can trust him. Nothing is going to occur from random chance or unseen or unknown factors influencing the unfolding of events, but that everything is being guided to its appointed ends according to God's sovereign plan. If you remember back in Ephesians, when Paul is writing to them, he lets them know that God is the one who is at work, and he says that he works all things according to, Well, it's in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. In him that is in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. God's in control. That's why this opening vision is here. We're going to look at it more next week, and we'll see the redemption part. This is kind of, you might say, the creation section, chapter 4, the redemption section, is chapter 5. So what's going on? God is sovereign. He wants his people to know that. God said in Isaiah chapter 46 at verse 9 through 11, he said, Remember the former things of old, God told Israel, and tells us through his word, For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Note, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous, this had to do with the time it was given in Isaiah, this next sentence. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, because God was bringing judgment on Judah. Yea, I have spoken it, God says, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. So when we read God's word in these prophetic sections and things, God hasn't changed. And we see the sins that were punished. We see the judgments that fell. God is working out his plan and his purpose. He is in control. For God's people, his church, his persecuted, afflicted flock that he loves and gave himself for our Lord Jesus Christ in in shedding his blood, he wants us to know, yes, there's going to be dark times. There's going to be difficult times. There's going to be persecution. Some of you may be martyred. Some of you will be martyred. You don't need to be afraid. The one who holds the future is the one who loves you, who came into this world and took on a human nature, lived a sinless life, and then died for your sins on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and just his very presence there as your representative, he intercedes for you, and he secures your salvation, and nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. That's why these opening chapters, I believe, 4 and 5, are here. It's important for us to know this, to know that our God is God. He is sovereign. We can trust him. And as things unfold, we may not understand all the ins and outs, but he does. And we can know we're in his hands, whether in life or in death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We have full redemption and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32, the last part. Daniel, speaking of the judgment and the unfolding of time, in Daniel 11:32, he said an interesting statement. He said, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. 
the people that know their God. You can know God. He has revealed himself. He's not crippled and can't communicate to us. He's revealed himself in his word. In the creation and providence. We understand creation and providence from the word. Otherwise we can misread it. But those who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Why? Because they know they're, they are in the hands of the Lord and they know the future is in his hands and the present. We don't need to be afraid. And that's our God. That's why I believe God put these two chapters here. So when we start reading, what I might say, some of the scary stuff <laughs> that can be scary, like, oh my, what's going to happen here? Is this past, present, or future? What kind of application does this have in our generation? And there's plenty of application. Um, what can I do? Well, you can trust God. And then that means even if the world tells you, well, you better not say that. You better not talk about Jesus. You better not stand up for what's right. You better not oppose evil in the world. Well, who do you think you are? Well, I think I belong to Jesus. And I think he's in control. So I'm going to do what he says and not worry about it. As God gives me courage to follow the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain. May God give us grace to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would seal it to our hearts. Help us to remember what your, the scriptures have said. And we ask all this with the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ, blessed and holy name. We thank you, Father, that you are sovereign. You are Lord. You are the God who was and who is and who is to come. And we do say you are worthy of all worship, adoration, honor, and thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray and ask your blessing upon us. In his name we pray. Amen.